This is a variety show with no particular niche, baby. It's always about hanging out. Maybe we'll laugh at some stuff. Maybe we'll learn something new. But it's always about hanging out, me and you. Hi. Welcome to That Thing with James. I'm your host, James, and I have slogged through a dense, murky, dangerous quagmire of depression, anxiety, and existential dread to make sure this episode gets out to you. What's up? How's it going? I watched this week, I watched the latest uh, slash new season of Russian Doll, which I wasn't sure if it was going to come out or not, but it was all right. I, it wasn't as good as the first season, but it's better than a lot of shows, <laughs> especially Netflix shows. Like, what the fuck is going on with Netflix right now? Well, let's see what else. Uh, Batman came out on the uh, HBO app, so I got to rewatch that movie. So that was my second time rewatching Batman, and yeah, they really could have shaved an hour off. That that was one of those cases of there's so many like three hour movies now because it's so much easier and cheaper to make a movie just with digital tools, and so so many filmmakers say, oh, I can make a three hour movie now, but never stop. Do they ever stop to ask themselves? Should this be a three-hour movie? So it's like, we got two cases here. It's, I have three hours at my disposal, so that means I can pack in extra feeling versus I have three hours and I need three hours to get through this story. Which is it? Which is it? say, a good example of needing three hours to get through all of the story. My One of my favorites, Martin Scorsese, three hours. Or even like Quentin Tarantino, three-hour movies, but there's stuff happening all the time. It's not just like dead air, you know? We don't like... we. You don't have to have the actors cycling through every fucking emotion like an emote wheel on their face in order to communicate emotion or or, or to manipulate the emotions of the audience. That's not necessary. Leave that up to the storytelling. If the story takes three hours, fine. If the story does not necessarily take three hours, but you're stretching it out to fit three hours that's not okay. And you're wasting a lot of people's time. Maybe your three hour movie could have been a fine tight 90. Whatever happened to a tight 90? God, I'm probably old now. Like, oh, this old guy owns a tight 90. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? A tight 90 is good. Who doesn't love a tight, taut 90? Well, that's not at all what I'm talking about today. Um... So I wasn't sure, as usually, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about. And as usual, I have no guests or anything lined up. Um, I do miss my life in Austin, and that's part of the problem. But I found two things 
And I think I'm going to save the goofier one for the bonus episode. Um, I found some, some, some good uh, copy pasta that I just had to share. And I think I'm going to do that on the bonus episode. So if you want copy, if you want dramatic readings of copy pasta, etc., and if you want in a bonus episode of this show every week, and if you want to help support an independent creator, save a pigeon, feed an artist, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash that thing with James. It only costs five bucks five bucks and you get access to not just one new bonus episode every week, but all the back catalog of all the previously recorded and released bonus episodes and the peace of mind that you're helping an independent creator and the boasting rights of saying that, you know, you're part of the Black Diamond Exclusive Club, which is a member of patreon.com slash that thing with James. And to those of you who are already patrons, thank you. You rock. While I'm on the business side, I am always on the hunt for content for this show. And I'm a one-man show um, dealing with a lot of stuff externally and internally. And I could always use your help harvesting content for this show. So if, uh, if you have any ideas of like a topic, an article, a video, some music, a meme, any questions, anything, email me your ideas, your suggestions, your propositions, email them to me. Please don't DM me. I don't check my DMs. I keep getting DMs. I don't like checking my DMs for of the many reasons I have especially over the past year, just developed some weird fucking aversion to them. I don't, I don't read them enough. I get anxiety when I have to think about reading them. So email me. Plus, it's, not, it's still not as secure. It's not the most secure thing as you could possibly have on the internet, but emails are certainly more secure than using like Facebook fucking Messenger. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please understand that uh, your messages are extremely insecure when you use social media direct messaging applications, okay? So email me at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. And if you want to reach out to me on social media, mainly Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram, just at me. Don't DM me. Just at me on something. Comment on something. You can find me on all three. My handle on all three is at James J. Asher. And another place you can fuck around and find out how fun it is to fuck around is at my subreddit r slash that thing with James. Give me shit posts. I love it. I love it. Life is a shit post, and I want to see that. I want you to express your own experience of life as shit post on my subreddit r slash that thing with James. And one last time, if you want to help support the show, if you find any kind of value from this show, I don't know why you would, but if you want to become a patron at patreon.com slash that thing with James now. The bonus episode is going to be shitpost, but for this episode, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite figures. Um, 
just a second. Let me look something up real quick. Got it. Unrelated. Oh, by the way, have you been following this Johnny Depp Amber Heard case? Shit's insane. And this is the first time Depp's gotten to like, ha had the opportunity to let his side of the story be heard. Shit's crazy. Amber Turd, who knows? What do you think about this? Uh, you know, tell me on my subreddit or whatever, dude. I want to hear what you think about all this stuff, but it's a crazy fucking case. And I usually don't, I, I, I usually don't follow uh, true crime stuff. Like it's got to be something that really piques my interest to get to get me to follow any kind of like court case or true crime thing outside of say like um, political labor history, that kind of stuff. Outside of that, um, this Johnny Depp thing, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case is fucking wild. I've been watching it all this past week, which by the way, I'm recording this on Sunday, April 24th. So by the time this episode comes out, it will have been yet another week of hearings or whatever. Uh, so I'm curious to see where this goes because some scintillating details have come out in this case recently. It's so fun. Anyway, back to what I was getting, uh, trying to talk about. One of my favorite books one of my favorite books, I got it, uh, my parents gifted it to me. It was a Christmas gift I received um, junior or senior year of undergrad. Uh, the book is titled A Short History of Nearly Everything, written by Bill Bryson. I, I love Bill Bryson. This is not the first book of his that I've read, but it is most certainly my favorite, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've uh, spoken about this book before on this show. But here's a quick rundown, a uh, quick description. Basically, it's science, the history of science, and just science in general, explained by a non-science person for non-science people. This, this guy, this guy who's more of a language person, an English, uh, a writer, more of a creative writer type person wanted to understand science and made a book about what he learned and helping the reader learn and appreciate silence. And one of the main figures that pops up in this book time and time again is someone named Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman is sort of like uh, one of the parents of quantum physics, like understanding it and shit like that. Well, just before I hit record on this, I, I saw someone uh, post a screenshot of something about um, a, a, I guess maybe a thought experiment uh, about a one electron universe. So this is kind of a science episode. Boop, 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 science. Let me take a drink. I'm getting all dry thinking about science. Hold on. So, I'm back. We live in a world that is often described uh, with, with uh, uh, that, that works within laws known as Newtonian physics. Gravity. Things drop. Things behave and move in a certain way. These are called Newtonian physics. 
He sort of uh, experimented and thought up by uh, this old dude, long dead, named Sir Isaac Newton. However, however, since, uh, and so for a long time, Newtonian physics were regarded as like, the thing like this is just flat out how the universe works these are the mechanics of everything but time passed and people learned more and observed more and recorded more and started finding that oh newtonian physics does not apply to certain things is this accurate why is this so so particularly when you get down to the quantum level, that is when you are looking at observing, experimenting, manipulating, and recording the activity of atoms and subatomic particles, Newtonian physics does not apply. For example, an electron or various other types of particles are both a particle and a wave at the same time. Things fall apart, baby. And I imagine as below, so above, if we were or are able to observe things on a more macro scale than the macro we're able to mac on right now, I imagine we would find behavior similar to the mm, subatomic scale, the, the, the uh, quantum scale, super duper macro, super duper micro, I bet. I bet, behave in similar ways. And Newtonian physics maybe sort of applies to things somewhere in the middle in a little bit. But so there's an idea that um, there's quantum entanglement. And that is like there are uh, two particles or particle wave things that exist in separate parts of the universe, yet they both mirror each other's um, behavior. So say you have a chicken egg in China and then you got a chicken egg in, in Canada. And, um, these, these chicken eggs are actually one chicken egg, but they're two whole chicken eggs that you can hold and observe and manipulate and say, so you've got someone in China who's got this chicken egg. They put it on its base and spin it on a table without cracking it. They spin it on a table. Meanwhile, over in Canada, the the entangled egg, the <coughs> the twin or mirror egg of the China egg is sitting on a table and no one's touching it. Someone's just looking at it. And all of a sudden, the egg just rises up on its base and starts spinning around. That's because someone in, in China physically spun their egg. So basically, you've got this thing. It, it's, a, it's one thing, but it's also two things. And these two things exist in two separate places in space, but behave in the same way at the same time faster than the speed of light, I think. I think think that's kind of what quantum entanglement is about a little bit. If if you need to correct me, email me or whatever, or, or leave a comment if you're watching this on YouTube. But that's kind of the idea as I understand it, unless I'm mistaken. And I have a feeling that what we're about to read about this 
experiment, this thought experiment of perhaps a one-electron universe may have something to do with quantum entanglement, perhaps. So, I found this article on gizmodo.com. It was written by Alastair Wilkins, published January 17th, 2012, at 5.20 p.m. The title is, What If Every Electron in the Universe was all the same exact particle. What? And let's read. There's an idea that suggests all the universe's electrons are actually one particle forever traveling backwards and forwards in time. It's a simple, elegant idea that solves some of physics' biggest mysteries. There's only one tiny problem. It's complete nonsense. This is the story of that bizarre thought experiment and John Archibald Wheeler, the brilliant, largely unsung physicist who came up with it. Uh, So it's not from Richard Feynman. Let's see. I haven't read this yet. So the indistinguishable problem. Like so much of the quantum world, electrons are strange. What's worse, they're all strange in exactly the same way. Every electron is identical to every other electron. They all have the same mass, the same electric charge, and the same spin. For more on what these terms mean, check out our field guides, blah, blah, blah. Electrons are just one of the indistinguishable particles. Other examples include photons, neutrinos, photon, protons, neutrons, and indeed most of the subatomic particles. This isn't a trivial point either. Not only is it impossible to tell electrons apart based on their physical properties, it's essentially impossible to tell them apart at all. This is because determining specific electrons by their positron, or position rather, would require measuring their trajectories with exact precision, and the laws of quantum mechanics forbid this. Between measurements, electrons in the quantum world are probabilistic, defined by wave functions that give the odds of finding that particle in any given position. So, when the wave function of multiple electrons overlap, it becomes officially impossible to determine which of the electrons was the one that was originally measured. Side note. So yeah, you can't really... We we have yet to be able to like exactly pinpoint where a single electron is because every time we do it it moves somehow our observation and the instruments we use to observe them changes the everything about the fucking electron it's 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 really bizarre shit let's keep reading this is all well-established quantum theory, backed up by nearly a century of experimental work, but it doesn't answer the deeper question, why are all the electrons identical? 
They most assuredly are, but there's no actual reason why they should be. For many scientists, a question like this traipses over into philosophy, at least at current level of knowledge. As far as most of physics is concerned, indistinguishable particles are indistinguishable simply because that's the way the universe is. No further explanation can be advanced, and so far, one hasn't really been needed. One electron universe. The one electron universe is, among other things, one of the very few attempts to explain why all electrons are identical. It has roots in an entirely different form of symmetry between particles, that of an electron and its antimatter counterpart, the positron. Between or er, the two particles have the same mass, the same spin, and the same everything except for its charge. Leaving the charge aside, the electron and the positron are, well, indistinguishable. And in 1940, that gave a Princeton physicist named John Wheeler an idea. Wheeler's idea is often associated with his doctoral student, the legendary physicist Richard Feynman. That's probably because Feynman gave the idea its most famous airing in his 1965 Nobel lecture. Here's his account, quote, I received a telephone call one day at the Graduate College at Princeton from Professor Wheeler in which he said, Feynman, I know why all electrons have the same charge and same mass. Why? Because they are all the same electron. And then he explained on the telephone, suppose that all the world lines, or suppose that the world lines we were ordinarily considering before in time and space, instead of only going up in time, were a tremendous knot, and then we cut through the knot by the plane corresponding to a fixed time, then we would see many, many world lines, and that would represent many electrons, except for one thing. If in one section, this is an ordinary electron world line, and the next section in, in which it reversed itself and is coming back from the future, we have the wrong sign to the proper time, the, to, the pro, to the proper four velocities. And that's equivalent to changing the sign of charge, and therefore, that part of the path would act like a positron, end quote. And this is why I say that book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, is really good. Because uh, that made no fucking sense to me. But in the book, Bill Bryson does a pretty damn good job of, you know, making sense of stuff like that. Hold on just one second. Got a visitor. Had to help unload groceries. How lucky am I? I'm not the only one with a vehicle anymore. Back to it. So... There was all that crazy quote by uh, Wheeler calling Feynman. It seemed like a bunch of nonsense to me. I'm sure if I knew more about it, it wouldn't be so much nonsense. But as I mentioned, Bill Bryson does a great job of translating that into normal people 
uh, language. But let's keep going with this article. Wheeler had keyed into a basic, if bizarre, point of particle physics. The direction in which time flowed doesn't seem to matter at all. And the arrow of time is, in most cases, completely reversible. It's a bit more complicated than that, but this is a topic for another time. The upshot is that, with a few simple equations, Wheeler could transform an electron moving forward in time to one traveling backwards, and the only observable change would be the particle's charge, which would flip from negative to positive. And that kind of reminds me of the time crystals I spoke about about a month or so ago. In other words, an electron would become a positron. As Wheeler pointed out, each electron traces out a unique path through space-time, which is its world line, or I guess like a timeline, maybe. He simply connected all the forward-traveling electrons and backward-traveling positrons into a single gigantic world line, imagining a particle tracing its way back and forth through the history of the universe to become every electron and positron we have ever observed. And that is why all electrons were indistinguishable. Prepare to feel old very old. The implications of this would be absolutely tremendous. Current estimates suggest there's about 10 to the 80th power atoms in the observable universe. So let's use that same figure for the number of electrons. Actually, since the vast majority of those are one electron hydrogen atoms anyway, that isn't much of a stretch. The universe is already nearly 14 billion years old, and somehow Bezos and so many others own multiples, tens of times that much money, which is a fucking crime. Eat the rich. But it will last far far longer than that, although the ultimate age of the universe depends on which theory is its final fate you subscribe to, uh, of its final fate you subscribe to. Since we're really only going for a rough estimate anyway, let's just use 4.6 times 10 to the 26th power years, which is the lower limit for the lifetime of an electron before it decays, assuming it actually decays, which is not a certainty. So then, if one electron universe, if if the one electron universe is correct, that single particle has traveled through the universe 10 to the 80th power times, with each journey taking 460 septillion years, and you can double that for all its return trips as a backwards-going positron. This means, by the end of its journey, the electron is 2 times 4.6 times 10 to the 24th power times 10 to the 80th power years old, or just about 10 to the 105th power years old. That's 
<laughs> I totally read that wrong, what I'm about to read. That's 10,000 Gabagool years old. It's actually the word is Google, not, not Google, but G-O-O-G-O-L. But I kind of like Gabagool. 10,000 Gabagool years old. Hey. That's also that also means that 99.99% of the electrons in your body and indeed everywhere else in the universe have already been traveling for over a gabagool years assuming this is true of course I don't know about you but I suddenly feel weirdly ancient the trouble with observation it's going too far to call the idea to, uh, of a one-electron universe a full-fledged theory or really anything close to it. It's more of a gloriously unconventional thought experiment. But that doesn't change the fact that from a strictly theoretical perspective, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Sure, your intuition probably tells you that this is very, very unlikely, but classical world intuition doesn't mean anything when it comes to the quantum world. It really could be accurate. Who fucking knows? It could just be turtles all the way down, baby. After all, we now take it as read that it's impossible to know the velocity and the position of a particle at the same time that particles are generally speaking just as happy traveling backwards in time as they are forward that particles can be entangled so that measuring one will instantaneously affect another no matter how far apart they are these are all deeply weird yet they're all absolutely true. So why not a single time-traveling electron for the entire universe? The single electron universe falls down on experimental grounds, not theoretical ones. One might have spotted the problem. For a single electron to account for all electrons in the universe, it needs to travel backwards through the universe exactly as many times as it travels forward. That means, in this model, that there should be exactly as many positrons as there are electrons. We know that that simply isn't the case, and that matter completely and utterly dominates antimatter, which means the one electron universe can't be true. To be clear, Wheeler never pretended otherwise. As Feynman recalled in his lecture, Wheeler was aware of this problem from the outset and probably half-jokingly offered a rather unlikely way to explain the positron shortage, quote, but professor, I said, there aren't as many positrons as electrons. Well, maybe they're hidden in the protons or something, he said. End quote. And frankly, I mean, that... You, uh, uh, I, I feel like uh, the quantum realm is probably, uh, you know, uh, the rules of quantum physics are the same as the rules of one's imagination. That is... Uh, you think it, it it exists. So in his memoir, Geons, I think G-E-O-N-S, Geons, Black Holes and Quantum Foam, Wheeler made it clear that his 
positrons and protons idea was not meant to be taken seriously. Quote, I knew, of course, that at least in our, at our corner of the universe, there are lots more electrons than positrons, but I still found it an exciting idea to think of trajectories in time-space that could that could go unrestricted in any direction, forward in time, backward in time, up, down, left, or right, end quote. Wheeler did not leave himself a tiny loophole there, pointing out that we know electrons far outnumber positrons, quote, at least in our corner of the universe, end quote, which leaves open the theoretical possibility that elsewhere in the cosmos, there might be all the positrons needed to make up this vast local discrepancy. That, however, goes against the cosmological principle, which is the general assumption that the universe is essentially the same all over, and we don't occupy a special or unusual position in it. Technically, that doesn't have to be true, but there's 500 years of physics backing it up, and there would need to be some truly extraordinary reasons for physicists to consider abandoning it. A word for Wheeler. John Wheeler isn't a name that's as well known outside physics circles as perhaps it should be. It probably doesn't help that he is in the shadow of his doctoral student and longtime collaborator Richard Feynman, whose popular books and lectures, not to mention his larger-than-life personality, made him one of the most famous physicists in the 20th century. John Wheeler was rather different as physicist Paul Davies, another name that pops up. All these names have popped up in this book by Bill Bryson, by the way. Uh, as Paul Davies explained in his book about time, Einstein's unfinished revolution, quote, I confess, I have always been amused by the thought of the collaboration between these two Americans, as different as chalk from cheese. Wheeler is a refined, patrician man, mild-mannered and impeccably polite. A colleague once said of Wheeler that he is a perfect gentleman inside of which lies a perfect gentleman. Feynman, by contrast, was famous for his brashness, irreverence, womanizing, practical joking, and bongo playing. End quote. Let me tell you, I cannot recommend a short history of nearly everything enough because half of the fucking story is about the scientists themselves and they are such strong characters. It is such a fun read. Onward. A lifelong academic, Wheeler earned his PhD from Johns Hopkins, which has always confused me. Why are there plural Johns? Also, by the way, I used to have <clears throat> used to have a, a a client. Let's say I had a client who uh, this is an older man, so a baby boomer, who became very agitated and confused when I used the word plural because he did not know that was a word, because he was trying to figure out how to spell a very simple word, like, let's say, uh, apples. And I said, well, there's an S, that means it's plural. And he became very agitated 
and angry and confused. He didn't know what plural meant. He had never heard the word plural, and he had no idea what does that have to do with an S at the end. Onward. John's plural John Hopkins, at just 21 and his first professorship at North Carolina by the age of 24. Three years later, Wheeler moved to Princeton, which has long been the premier center for cutting-edge physics. I have a cousin who lives there, teaches there too. I'd love to go see him. A gifted and committed teacher, Wheeler continued to teach physics to the freshmen and sophomores long after he gained international renown, and his long list of doctoral students includes such luminaries as Feynman, Kip Thorne, black hole expert John uh, Beckenstein, many world's pioneer Hugh Everett, and dozens more. Wheeler also had a noted way with words, and he coined two of the most famous concepts in modern physics, and science fiction for that matter. In 1957, his work on the general relativity led him, or on general relativity, led him to consider theoretical, quote-unquote, tunnels through time space, which he called, quote-unquote, wormholes. Yeah. In, 1960, in a 1967 lecture, he made the first public use of the term, quote-unquote, black hole. Though he always insisted he had heard the term from someone else, either way, every time we use those terms, we owe John Wheeler a debt of thanks. Often, in collaboration with Feynman, Wheeler made many crucial collaborations in our understanding of physics. He was a key player in the revival of general relativity. relativity. Hold on, I need to take some water drink real quick. I'm getting tongue-tied. <clears throat> he was a key player in the revival of general relativity as a subject worthy of serious theoretical consideration, which until then had languished as a curiosity unsuitable for experimentation. He worked extensively on quantum gravity and was one of the first to propose that information was part of the fundamental fabric of the universe, which he called it the, quote, it from bit doctrine, end quote. As with his one electron universe, Wheeler never shied away from experimenting or exploring strange and unusual corners of physics. Towards the end of his life, he uh, came up with the, quote, participatory anthropic principle, end quote, which holds the universe is actually created by the presence of observers, meaning uh. that we all can observe from the thing that, meaning that all we can observe from the things right around us to the earliest remnants of the Big Bang simply exist because we're around to look at them. I've thought about that too, man. I've thought about that too. Much like his single electron idea, you don't have to believe in it, but it's a fascinating thought. John Wheeler died in 2008 at the age of 96. The legacy of the lone electron. Let's go, let's go back one last time to Richard Feynman's 1965 lecture, which remains the most well-known discussion of Wheeler's idea. 
While the previous expert was simply his account, or excerpt was simply his account of how Wheeler proposed the idea, I left out the punchline to the whole anecdote in which Feynman reveals his reaction to the proposal. Quote, I did not take the idea that all... I did not take the idea that all electrons were the same one from him as seriously as I took the observation that positrons could simply be represented as electrons going from the future to the past in a back section of their world lines. That I stole, end quote. And steal it he did, although I doubt Wheeler saw it as any sort of theft in are universes thicker than blackberries? The late mathematician and science writer Martin Gardner eloquently describes just how far Feynman was able to take Wheeler's initial wild idea. Quote, the suggestion that a positron could be interpreted as an electron moving temporarily backwards in time caught Feynman's fancy, and he found that the interpretation could be handled mathematically in a way that was entirely consistent with logic and with the laws of quantum theory. It became a cornerstone in his famous space-time view of quantum mechanics, which he completed eight years later and for which he shared his Nobel Prize. The theory is equivalent to traditional views, but the zigzag dance of Feynman's particles provided a new way of handling certain calculations and greatly simplifying them. Does this mean that the positron is really an electron moving backward in time? No, that is only one physical interpretation of the Feynman graphs. Other interpretations, just as valid, do not speak of time reversal. With the new experiments suggesting a mysterious unlocking of charge, parity, and time direction, however, the zigzag dance of Feynman's electrons as it traces its world line through space-time no longer seems as bizarre a physical interpretation as it once did, end quote. It's entirely possible that without Wheeler's idea of a single electron universe and his 1940 phone call to his doctoral student, Richard Feynman doesn't win the Nobel Prize 25 years later. That's a good lesson to us all, that no matter how strange and impossible an idea might sound, you never know where it might ultimately lead or what great new strands of knowledge it might uncover. Well, at least assuming you and your good friend are two of the great physicists who ever lived, I guess. Again, that was written by Alistair Wilkins, titled, What If Every Electron in the Universe Was All the Same Exact Particle? So, here's your job for the week. Take something that seems impossible and see if you can learn something else or think of other things you might have learned and applied in your life that came from a seemingly irrelevant, impossible, silly, non-sequitur, phenomena, idea, word, sentence, whatever. And let me know. Email me. And email me content ideas at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. And please, if you're interested, support the show. Become a member at patreon.com slash that thing with James. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you stick around for the bonus episode. It will be a lot sillier than this one. I'm going to be reading some 
proposed copypasta text. I love you, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.